what we see with Islamic State, and particularly Al-Qaeda, is a targeting of innocence. We didn't have any knowledge, we didn't know what, why he was arrested. And when they said it's the same for terrorism... Even at the time when the police arrived, we didn't know what was going on. Fabricated notebook, exchanges between police that have no honest motive, entirely sinister. Four unknown fingerprints, uh, which were not Kabay Hussein's or Nawi Dali's. Are we really here with planted evidence, fabricated notebooks? Well, sadly, we're right back there. My name is Mark Williams-Thomas, and I'm an investigative reporter. However, my background is as a former detective and criminologist. It was my investigation and programme that finally exposed Jimmy Savile as a predatory sex offender. I was also granted exclusive access beating the world's media to interview Oscar Pistorius, the head of his conviction for killing Reva Steenkamp. The legal challenges for all of my programmes are considerable, meaning very often I cannot go as far as I would like. So I looked at other ways of getting a case into the public domain and decided on a podcast series, just looking at cases which could be miscarriages of justice. All the cases I will feature ask the same question. Does the evidence collected by the police and presented in court stand up in the light of day to scrutiny? Or are people in jail for crimes they did not commit? My role as an investigator is always the same. I will place you, the listener, at the centre of this investigation. You become the armchair detective and ultimately I will ask you to make up your mind. Are each of the convictions safe? And if not, could there be a miscarriage of justice with four innocent people in jail? All of the accounts are factual, but some may have been voiced up by actors. This podcast will focus on the work of MI5 and the West Midlands Police, and in particular a secret unit set up within the force called the Special Projects Team. So what, and who are, MI5? The name dates back to the First World War, when they were the fifth branch of the Directorate of Military Intelligence of the War Office, the MI, coming from Military Intelligence. MI5 was renamed the Security Service in 1931, and is no longer part of the UK military establishment. MI5 is now referred to as the British Security Service and is a government department under the authority of the Secretary of State, the Home Secretary. This podcast will look at a case involving four men who are all in jail, convicted of engaging in conduct in preparation of terrorist acts. The convictions follow a trial that lasted four and a half months, during which time the UK was subject to the terrible consequences of four separate terrorist attacks. These attacks demonstrated the carnage that can be created by different types of terrorist methods, this time using a vehicle and bladed weapons. This podcast will set to give you an insight into the following. The background to the jailed men and why they were most likely on the MI5 watch list, the covert police operation to catch them, the prosecution's case, the defence's case, and along the way, I will provide you with an insight into the convicted men's lifestyles and background. The two questions that you need to consider are, did the jury convict four guilty men who were about to unleash a horrific terrorist attack on mainland Britain? 
Or were they the victims of police corruption and false evidence and convicted as a result of fear and moral panic? Will Geddes is a security specialist advising international corporations, military, law enforcement and government agency groups, as well as high net worth individuals, celebrities, heads of state and foreign royal families. So where does the greatest threat from terrorism come from and how effective are we at disrupting it? We've seen join-ups by terrorist groups before, like Provisional IRA and Libya, but we're seeing link-ups between Boko Haram in West Africa and Al-Shabaab in East Africa and their alignment with Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, who are also inveigling their way into their agendas as well. It's, it's a really difficult one to say, but that's from the Islamic extremism angle. We're not considering here the far-right extremism. And I remember the head of domestic extremism unit uh, within the UK police. Uh, he and I were sitting down having a chat about this. And he said to me, Will, the big challenge that we have is that it is long-fuse attacks. And what that means is these things can bubble on under the surface for a very, very, very long time before they become incredibly immediate. And we've seen that also with the number of attacks which have been what we'd call low-tech attacks. London Bridge, Borough Market, uh, Westminster Bridge here in the United Kingdom, the Nice attack uh, on Bastille Day. You know, you've got groups that will use a vehicle, go and buy a knife, uh, make a Molotov, which is remarkably easy to do, and carry out attacks literally in a spontaneous fashion. Since we've had many years and many decades of dealing with our own domestic extremism and terrorism issues, particularly with the IRA, one of the areas that we've been especially good at is human source intelligence gathering, infiltrating terrorist cells, uh, very much the work that was carried out by 14 Intelligence, uh, who carried out surveillance, infiltrations, source handling, and fundamentally gathering information on the whereabouts, assets, activities, players within uh, particular terrorism plots. But where we've had to increase and expand that capability has been inevitably online. Even though GCHQ and our counterparts in the Five Eyes Partners, which is Canada, United States, Australia and New Zealand, are incredibly good at sharing intelligence, the challenge will always be trying to find those darker corners of the internet where these individuals will inhabit. But equally, those that are looking to seek it out, who are determined enough to invest the time and efforts to try and find those sites and find that propaganda or to find the environment where they're most likely to potentially be approached by someone who may, through that process, radicalise them. In August 2017, after a 16-week trial at the Old Bailey, much of which was held in secret, Naweed Ali, aged 29, Kobeb Hussain, aged 24, 32-year-old Mohibar Rahman and a fourth man, 38-year-old Tahir Aziz, were all convicted of preparing for terrorist acts. Gareth Pierce is the lawyer and senior partner at Burnbank Pierce and Partners who represented the convicted men. We kept, naively as it turns out, 
throughout the trial thinking this is it, they've got to drop it. We, the lawyers in the case, had had recurrent experiences of one iota of such evidence emerging in a case, either leading to prosecution abandoning the trial or a judge stopping it, um, or in a tragic case of someone wrongly convicted of his or her being acquitted even after 15, 16, 18, 22 years. This was precisely the kind of evidence that led to exoneration of many, too many people over the years. Exactly this kind of thing, the fabricated notebook of exchanges between police that have no honest motive, entirely sinister, actions of one police officer being a domino effect so that maybe one defendant only might be exonerated, but all defendants in the case are acquitted. These were classic examples of staggering evidence that contradicted the integrity of the prosecution case, but yet it went on. Nazrim Aziz told me about the day her brother was arrested. It was Friday, the day he was arrested, and um, I was at work. It was Friday the 16th of August, and he, would, uh, he came back from work, read his uh, prayers at a local mosque, and he went to pick his children up from school, like he would, that was his daily routine. And he dropped um, his son off at home, and he had to drop the, the, the younger one at um, Nan's, still in his uniform, and uh, that's when he was arrested. We didn't have any knowledge, we didn't know what, why he was arrested. And when they said it's the same for terrorism, it was a complete shock, because he's, we've never ever, obviously he's never ever said anything, we've never associated anything at all. And it was a big, big shock for us all. So what is the background to this case? In August 2016, after many months of surveillance, the British Security Services MI5 and a covert squad, which was part of the West Midlands Police Counter-Terrorism Unit, set up a fake courier firm out of an industrial unit in central Birmingham. This fake business was called Hero Couriers and was being run by two undercover West Midlands police officers called Vincent and Andy. These were aliases. Kobabe Hussein started working as a driver for the fake company, being paid £100 cash in hand, which was very enticing. And very soon after Hussein started working for them, they also recruited Nawid Ali. Hussein and Ali were not only neighbours, but friends. The crucial day, and on which the whole prosecution case was built around, occurred on Friday, the 26th of August 2016. It was 17 minutes past six in the morning, and Ali arrived for his first day of work at Hero Couriers. He was driving his black Seat Leon, and Vincent told him he needed to give him the car keys, and he would park his car inside the lockup. Ali then set off on his day's deliveries, using a Fiat van supplied by Vincent. Unbeknown to Ali, it had already been set up for his car to be subject to a search and covert listening and recording devices installed by MI5. I will go into greater detail later with the timings and precise actions of the police and MI5, but for now, 
A search was carried out on the Seat Leon, belonging to Ali, and a carrier bag was found in view under the rear of the driver's seat. The bag contained a meat cleaver, which had the word kaffir, meaning non-believer, scratched onto the blade, a partially constructed pipe bomb, a roll of gaffer tape, gloves, a bullet, a white tissue, a number of shotgun cartridges, a black handgun with an empty magazine taped to its handle with gaffer tape. No fingerprints were found of any of the suspects, either on the bag or any of the contents inside the bag. However, DNA belonging to Kebab Hussein and his sister were found on the gaffer tape. The prosecution case was a simple one. The four men were conspiring to commit a terrorist attack and this bag bore the contents of what they would use. The opposing view of the defence and therefore of all the defendants was that they claimed the bag and its incriminating contents were planted by the police, namely by the undercover police officer Vincent. Vincent was cross-examined over 12 days and repeatedly rejected the allegations against him. He also described them in a private message to colleagues as the usual bollocks. Jurors at the Old Bailey agreed with him and the prosecution and after deliberating for more than 22 hours, unanimously convicted the four men of preparing terrorist acts. And what of the background of the convicted men? Why were they of interest to the security services? Gareth Pierce is a solicitor who represented the four men. In the 1960s, she worked as a journalist in the United States following the campaign of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And since, as a solicitor, she has represented Judith Ward, a woman wrongfully convicted in 1974 of several IRA-related bombings, the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, several mine workers after the Battle of Orgreave, and Mozambique, who was held in extrajudicial detention at Guantanamo Bay. They went to Pakistan, they went to a training camp. They were young, they were next-door neighbours. They were tried on an indictment with a number of other people who were uh, charged with much more serious involvement or gradations of more serious involvement, despite having been the travellers, that's what they were referred to, the travellers who actually caught a plane and went to Pakistan with the idea of, of somehow becoming involved in what was put to them as, as an obligation for a young Muslim to train to fight. They were similarly regarded by prosecution and defence and the sentencing judge as people who probably had been misguidedly advised that this would be an important adventure in their lives, but who after a day there decided it was not for them, immediately came back at the request of their families on effectively the next plane. And of course they were subsequently prosecuted for the legislation of going over to join training camps. And that's the offence of going over and joining a training camp in Pakistan. What did that mean for them as individuals living in this country in terms of having their lives monitored? So the MI5, the British Security Services, they will look at certain people. Did that put them firmly on their radar? 
it put them potentially um, on the radar and not necessarily in perpetuity. But what became clear was that something occurred insofar as one could speculate. It probably was um, some kind of maybe malicious statement made by someone at some stage of their respective prison careers. Not necessarily that they might be people who were be involved, but people who might know people who might be involved. Who knows? But when they eventually came out, one of the two, Nui Dali, was propositioned by MI5 to give information, and one of them wasn't, Kabeb Hussain. And from then on in, it would appear that, um, rightly or wrongly, MI5, and in turn the West Midlands Police, had an interest in Kabeb Hussain, and then in a number of people who were friends of his, which included his next-door neighbour, Nuid Alai. And that became even clearer when the police operation, which entrapped them, came to fruition, that it had been an exercise for the specific purpose of obtaining evidence on Kabeba Zain. On the 23rd of August 2011, Ali and Hussein left their home in Birmingham and flew to Pakistan to go to a terrorist training camp. When their respective families found out that they had gone to Pakistan, they immediately called them and the men flew back a few days later. Ali and Hussein pleaded guilty and were sentenced to three years and four months. Separately, Rahman, in October 2010, downloaded at his home in Stoke two issues of Inspire magazine published by Al-Qaeda. One of them included an article called How to Make a Bomb in Your Mum's Kitchen. Rahman was charged with having the Al-Qaeda articles in his possession with intent to use them for a terrorist purpose. So three of the four men had previous convictions for terrorist offences. So Gareth, I'm here at your offices in London. Just give me a sense of the type of work you do. Over many years now, I'm basically a defence lawyer, defend criminal cases, but in ways that have diverged in recent years, and challenging the government, um, challenging the police in terms of actions they've taken. And the more that the the world has become a complicated case, the more it's taken one into areas that one would never have believed existed, such as complicity and rendition to Guantanamo or elsewhere. It's a complex world, and the cases are complex. So, for want of a better word, some of those terrorism state cases, you do end up becoming quite involved in as far as defence. The cases are uh, extraordinarily demanding. The cases that the intention is that you don't win, people we act for don't win, and therefore the difficulties that have to be faced and the obstacles that have to be surmounted are um, considerable. So tell me about this case and how it starts. Um, 
two of the defendants, Nui Dali and Gabay Hussain, um, were arrested and they asked at the police station that this firm, our firm, advised them in the police station that was in the West Midlands and Coventry. And I and colleagues variously during the next two weeks um, were there to advise them and be present at interviews. The prosecution case was that these four men were planning a terrorist attack, although no evidence was provided as to where they believed an attack was likely to take place. On the 22nd of March 2017, whilst the prosecution was opening its case to the jury, there was a terrorist attack in Westminster, where terrorists Khalid Massoud mowed down pedestrians on Westminster Bridge, killing four people and injuring many others. Prior to this, the last terrorist attack on civilians in London was in 2005. So public attention and fear was certainly heightened as the trial got underway. The defence argued at the time of the trial and since that the publicity and moral panic following the Westminster attack might influence the jury. In addition to the Westminster incident, further terrorist attacks occurred during the trial. On Friday the 18th of August 2017, a terrorist drove a van, killing 13 people and injuring more than 100 on Las Ramblas in Barcelona. And just after midnight on the 19th of June 2017, a van driver mowed down Muslim worshippers on Seven Sisters Road near Finsbury Park Mosque. And around 10pm on the 3rd of June, a terrorist killed eight people and injured many others on London Bridge and in nearby Borough Market. And on Monday the 22nd of May, at the Ariana Grande concert being held at Manchester's Arena, a lone suicide terrorist killed 22 people and injured another 59. So, it is accurate to say that in 2017, the security services and police were on high alert, facing the unprecedented reality and fear of future terrorist attacks. And one will never know if a terrorist attack was imminent, as the prosecution say it was. So what was the evidence against the four men that ultimately got them convicted? On the 26th of May 2016, Kobabe Hussein, Naweed Ali and Mohibar Rahman all met in Birmingham whilst under surveillance and it was all filmed by the security services. Mohibar Rahman and Tahir Azid met in central London on the 10th of July and then again on the 12th of August in Stoke-on-Trent and a further meeting took place between Ali and Rahman at New Street Station, Birmingham on the 4th of August. And then all three, Hussein, Ali and Rahman, met on the 21st of August in Stoke-on-Trent. All these dates were significant, say the prosecution, because this was all part of them planning an attack. Significantly, and this will become evident later, all the meetings were filmed. Stephen Camlish QC from Garden Court Chambers has been a barrister for 40 years described as a formidable performer, utterly fearless in the face of hostile judges and brilliant at cross-examining. I asked Stephen what was key to the men being under surveillance. Well, first of all, it was the reason they were of interest. 
So everybody who's got such a connection goes on the list. So with, with so-called terrorist offences, it's you're not just in the purview of the police, you are in the purview of the security services, which have bigger resources and have joint operations with police. So you go on the list and then the extent to which you're followed and listened to and spoken to depends on any individual decision um, of a group of officers deciding who to target. So the fact that they were under surveillance at the time of their arrest may not mean anything more than that they were intermittently under surveillance by virtue of their previous convictions and that they were still associating. Now there's some elements of the trial which were done in camera, i.e. in secret, but there's some aspects you can talk about. What was Ali's view in respect of the security services and the contact he may or may not have had with them? Rahman, who gave evidence about this, had been meeting with MI5 officers who were seeking to recruit them by virtue of their associations with so-called known extremists. And Rahman gave evidence that he had been told that they were watching him and that they were, you know, he would never be out of their scope. Right. So when he met people such as his co-defendants in this case, he expected that they were being listened to and watched because he said, basically, that's what they told me. So the whole part of the case, which was about whether they were involving themselves in what looked like clandestine meetings and conducting anti-surveillance by chatting in the park rather than in a building, all on his case and on Ali's case stemmed from what basically they said they were doing, the security services. So it might be taken by the jury as, well, there's no smoke without fire. So if you're trying to avoid being listened to, you must be saying something that you don't want them to hear. But um, Rahman's evidence, which was compelling, was that he'd become paranoid because he'd been told enough times that they were watching him. And he, it had become his habit to talk to his friends, particularly the ones who'd been convicted previously, in a way that he thought wouldn't be listened to, regardless of what they were discussing. The manner in which the police collect evidence comes in many forms, and especially in the modern day, where phones and computers require careful examination and as such can provide vital evidence. One aspect of this was what the communication was between the three men, Rahman, Hussein and Ali. On this case and on other similar cases, they have quite high number of individuals on a particular surveillance. They use photography, they disguise themselves, uh, they use CCTV in cities, just as a routine, a routine day of surveillance for the security services is, I would say, more intense and more professional than most of the police surveillance you see. And in terms of Rahman, Hussein and Ali, their behaviour at the time, did they think that that could give rise to suspicion or were they just ignorant to that fact? I mean, from Ali's point of view, he was shocked that he was arrested because his case was from the outset that, well, I knew I was of interest to them, but we weren't doing anything. 
So by the very fact, if they were listening to me, they'd know we weren't doing anything. I mean, one major feature of this case is that when their phones were seized and their full encrypted WhatsApp accounts were exposed from their devices, there wasn't a single word of planning in the entire set of communications over quite a long period. Never any single event such as the, even in coded terms of buying things or having a target in their sights. The Crown uh, relied upon something they said the night before. One of them was saying, um, feeling bad about not doing anything, but they were discussing helping prisoners who'd been convicted and giving their family support and giving prisoners things that they could they needed in prison. That was their case, is that doing nothing meant doing nothing, or not doing enough, that's it, not doing enough to help the prisoners. But even that, the Crown relied on saying, well, the night before you said you weren't doing enough, but how could that be that between then and the following morning when Ali was arrested with a, a bomb and a gun and everything inside that bag, they can't have bought anything that night. Yeah. They didn't, they were under surveillance. Um, so, in fact, we used that to show that they weren't doing anything. And the Crown relied on it to say, well, this suddenly must have spurred them into doing something, and look what happened. So West Midlands Police and the British Security Services were concerned enough that they decided to run a covert operation, which involved setting up a fake company called Hero Couriers. This covert operation was to be run from a rented lockup in Birmingham. The setting up of the covert operation quickly led to Hussein being targeted and offered a job. He was enticed with £100 a day cash in hand. An undercover police officer called Vincent was to be the front of the covert operation and he was to be supported by another undercover officer called Andy. So the pay was surprisingly good, which they had to offer to, to lure him in. You know, he needed the work. I mean, they, they, they are very clever, um, really, <laughs> in terms of luring people into this kind of job. I mean, anyway, he took the job. It was cushy. It was not onerous at all. It was like leaving the city and delivering to another city and then coming back for the end of the day for 100 quid. And as far as they're concerned, hoping, hopefully chatting to your mates on the phone on the way. Hussein did a number of jobs and it was then him that talked to Ali and it was as a result of that communication when there was then the offer for Ali to start working at Heroes. So Vincent, who was the undercover officer in, in charge of, of the courier company, in a casual way tried to get Hussein to get his mate to work there as well. And the reason we believe, and it's pretty obvious they did that, is because in the month that Hussein had worked there, they'd got nothing on him. I mean, they'd got nothing to justify an arrest. And they obviously didn't have intelligence from phone calls he was making that was sufficient for their needs, which is very telling because it kind of indicates that they weren't doing what they, what they thought they might be doing. So what they then thought, well, let's get another one of his, his associates in and see if we get more from him. It was Ali's first day at Hero Couriers when the bag containing the items was found. Stephen Camlish talked me through Ali's movements that day. So 
morning 26th of August, Ali's due to turn up for his first day of work at Hero Careers. Talk me through that day. So he's under surveillance when he leaves home and he's not carrying anything. He's wearing traditional dress, so there's nowhere to hide a quite chunky plastic bag under his traditional dress. It's a one piece, so you, there's nowhere to hook it onto underneath your clothing. Um, so he definitely wasn't carrying anything. Um, and the Crown made this admission. He drives straight to Hero Couriers. Um, he doesn't stop on the way, the Crown made that admission. And then when he gets there, Vincent says to him, um, it's hard to park outside. If you park outside on a yellow line, you'll get a ticket. Or if you park across the road in the car park, you'll have to pay for it. So give me your keys and I'll keep your car in the unit for the whole day. So completely willingly, he gives his keys to the car with the bomb and the gun and the terrorist knife in it um, to Vincent uh, to, to drive. And apparently the bag's under the seat. So Vincent, um, who's much bigger, or quite a lot bigger than Ali, Mr. Ali, is going to have to move the seat anyway. And, and then um, Naweed Ali goes off to, to somewhere else and Vincent's got his car for the whole day with the keys. Now, how, um, how could that possibly happen? How could you bring a terrorist kit with a bomb in it to work, give, it to a, give your car to a stranger with the terrorist kit in it, not even in the boot, um, who has it for the whole day? Um, how could that ever possibly happen? So let's walk through from what happens after that. So car gets taken by Vincent, driven into the lockup. What happens after that? So then there's a strange gap um, in communication because Vincent receives a number of calls from one of his superiors, who's, in, who's basically his boss, and he doesn't answer them. And we put to Vincent quite clearly, that's because he was in the, bag plant, in the car planting the bag at this point. And um, it's a small place, so if your phone rings, wherever you are in the premises, you can catch it before it rings off because it would take you five to ten seconds to get to your phone um, and uh, he, his answers on this were basically burbled um, but so we said that must be when he planted the bag um, also MI5 were waiting not far away to come in with Andy Vincent's closest undercover colleague um, now we Ali leaves the premises at 7.24 and they don't come in for over an hour, I think I think it was eight forty something, but they're only five minutes drive away, so it looked like um, for at least part of the time that they were not supposed to be there for a while. I'm not suggesting for a moment that any of the MI5 officers knew this was going on. Mr. Camlish and Miss Pierce both believe that the one hour between Ali leaving his car alone with Vincent at the lockup and MI5 attending to plant the bug is absolutely critical. Naweed Ali leaves at 7.24, but the security services escorted by Andy don't get there for an hour and 20 minutes. They arrive at 8.44, when they could have been there in 10 minutes. As soon as Naweed Ali leaves, the, the, the reason for MI5 being there started. And there were some texts saying, Andy was saying, Later, about half an hour later, the MI5 was slow to leave. 
But the fact is, is that the first section of time, there's no explanation as to why they weren't already there. There was another undercover officer called Hadji, who'd been present just before Naweed Ali left for the day. Um, and he was basically posing as another employee, van driver. And his uh, duty was to go and wait by a motorway service station until he received further orders. But he was called by Vincent at 8.19, a crucial call, so before MI5 arrived, before anything happened officially with the car, to say, something has happened, I no longer need you to do what I told you was required when you left. And so the question is, what had happened? Nothing had happened. I mean, literally nothing had happened. But Hadji was absolutely certain that he received that call. In fact, it was about coming to pick Vincent up later. That was, that's what he was going to do. But Vincent said there'd no longer be a need for it. So something had happened to make that unnecessary. So Vincent makes a phone call to his, uh, his colleague to tell him things had changed yeah. and that there was no longer a need for him to come and pick him up. Yeah. But because, how did... because something had happened. Yes. But, but nothing had happened. MI5 were at the fake couriers to install covert surveillance equipment on Ali's car. Vincent stated that he saw the bag behind the driver's seat from outside the car. But Mr Camlish challenges this account by Vincent. They go into the car and they start putting the, fit, fitting the bug in. But prior to that, Vincent claims to have seen a bag under the driver's seat from outside with the JD Sports logo on it. Now, that was the first major provable lie because when you look at the bag in situ and there were photos, you can't see the JD Sports logo from outside. It's impossible. So he must have been into the car and seen that logo or put it there before, so be before the security services arrived. So only two things could have happened. He, He'd been in and seen it and then not touched it, which he denied because he said, I never went into the car, or he'd been in and planted it. I wanted to know more about any evidential material, such as CCTV and phone calls. Remember, whilst the men were under surveillance, they were filmed by the police and the British security services. So you have a situation where Ali turns up, he leaves his car with Vincent, Vincent takes it into the lockup. And then there is a phone call between him and a colleague, Haji, and there is discrepancy between what was said in that conversation. And then there's an hour and 20 minutes passes by before Andy and the security services turn up at the lockup. Yeah. And during that hour and 20 minutes, what does Vincent say took place? Is there any record of any audio, any CCTV? Because surely there must have been something there. So there was obviously CCTV in the Hero Couriers. Again, why would there not be? You set up a fake business in order to entrap people you think are in the process of committing crime or will commit crime. Why would you not have a camera to record what they're doing? Because if in the end you're bringing a case against them or there's an arrest, um, the best record is the physical record. It's easy to install an, an unseen camera and it costs nothing. 
you know, we can go to a shop and buy one for 100 quid and put it in there, but they had major resources. There was a document which was the, the, the uh, handwritten note of Hussey, the boss of, for the day, or one of them, um, which had the word CCTV on it um, in handwriting and, the, and, a, and a little box around next to it, which looked like a box, for, like a camera. When I asked him what that meant, um, he gave some answer which, again, wasn't credible, but it, it was just more support that they had a camera in there and um, that they didn't disclose it. So did they deny not that there was CCTV in yeah. that? Yeah. They said there wasn't any? That was the official response from the prosecution. You've got the security services and the police running an operation. They've been filming them, they've been photo photographing them, whatever other surveillance they've done on them, covert or what, yet they didn't have cameras in the lockup. So, so another piece of evidence which is important is that later the same day after the arrest, Andy sent a text to Vincent to ask Vincent whether the tech that they installed was running at the time that Andy and Vincent were alone in the premises. So why would you be worried about that? I asked him, unless you were doing something which you didn't want people to hear or see. And the answer was that um, they didn't want their faces to be seen. Then that answer proved that they'd also put, or there was, a camera, some kind of yes. visual um, recording Into made. The car either in the car or in the premises, because you can only be seen by a camera. Mm. So every time, often when you try to put them in a corner on things, they actually ended up having to give an answer which was an admission to something they'd previously denied. So did they admit to there being a camera and recording equipment in the car? And if so, did they disclose that? Yes, the recording equipment was the reason for the um, MI5 attendance that day. That was the purpose of it. But there was a whole issue because of this one text about when it was switched on and whether it had been switched on at the time that Andy was in there with the security services or whether it was never switched on. And all, that was a whole other tranche of evidence which was served during the trial. And they, the Crown had to call person we call Q who was in charge of technology for MI5 and he gave evidence about this device and how it was switched on and when it was switched on which was actually quite helpful to the defence because it showed that it was probably switched on um, despite what the officers had said at a time when it could have captured some of what went on in the premises because one of the big issues in the case was where the vehicles were in the, in the, in the, I mean, I won't go into why it was so important, but it was quite important because they claimed to have put the contents of the bag on a tarpaulin behind the car in front of an MI5 vehicle or, or a police vehicle which carried the MI5 officers to the scene. And they, they claimed that they only had a certain limited space to do that. What this showed was that some of that might have been recorded. Uh, because the, tech, the, the probes or probes were already switched on, which they denied. And um, the recordings were likely to have revealed that all of them were lying about where things were and what they did after the find. So what was the evidence that Q from MI5 
was able to obtain. It was the evidence of their contemporaneous records of, the, of what was going on and their communications between each other. So the police communicating with MI5 and the technology department uh, contemporaneously, which indicated that the tech, the, what they called the tech, was already on um, at a time when we, the defence and the jury, were interested in what was going on in the premises, i.e. there'd be a record of what yes. people were doing and saying. They denied it was on in the witness box, again, inconsistent with the contemporaneous evidence. But, you know, they just kept on denying it. So we know that the lockup where Ali's car had been parked by Vincent did have CCTV, but none was ever released. The evidence of the prosecution, the police and MI5 was that no recordings existed of that time in question. This is very significant. Why would the police and MI5 have CCTV in the lockup and at such a crucial time it not be recording? So MI5 have now arrived in the lockup and begin to search Ali's car before planting the bug. They find the bag because Vincent tells them that he's seen a bag under the seat. So that's the first thing they look at, which then gives rise to another obviously absurdly dodgy piece of evidence, which is they claimed that they photographed this material, uh, they photographed the bag in situ and the opening of the bag in sequence, but they'd wiped all the photographs because they'd um, wiped the SD card in the camera. So you ask yourself the question, why would you wipe it? <laughs> it's evidential. Mm. The actual find was wiped. So we have, um, and you, we use a good, very, very good, competent, more than competent technical guy who said, uh, that's rubbish. They, if they wiped it, then the, the record of it will still be on the card in what would now be unallocated space. And we put this to them and they, they initially, the Crown denied, even though they consulted their technical department, that, that you'd be able to see the wiped photos. And we persisted and said, that's just untrue. And if you're saying they're not on it, give us the card and we'll find them. At which point they found, immediately found all the photos. And there were, I don't know, 30 or so photos that they claimed they didn't have. And the photos themselves gave rise to significant cross-examination because some of the photos were not consistent with the evidence that they'd given and the sequence of events and what you could see when looking into the bag. An additional feature of the wiping of the photos from the card turned up later in the trial when I asked for about the fifth time for the MI5 officers' phones, personal phones, to be seized and downloaded for actual and deleted material, which eventually the prosecution did. And there was a conversation between Vincent and one of his mates in MI5, who turned out to be basically in charge of a, a group of MI5 operatives, of which this group were included. And they were are going to meet for a drink during the course of the trial and in a conversation that was disclosed to us Andy referred to how they had fucked up using that term the SD card issue and called it 
um, the SD card fuck up or words to that effect. So what was in the bag that Vincent says he found behind the driver's seat of Ali's car? So they found a partially constructed pipe bomb. They found a real-looking Beretta air pistol. And the fact that it it looked real is important, as I'll explain shortly. They found um, 11 cartridges, live shotgun cartridges of two different types. And they found a uh, knife, which was a kind of scimitar type. Well, it was no, in fact, I'll tell you what, it, it was not a scimitar. It was a kitchen hatchet type knife that you use for chopping um, meat. Yeah. And a roll of black sticky tape. How worried were Vincent and the rest of his team? That this was a real device likely to take up, likely to explode. So, what happened was, is they were left alone after their boss had told them to get the hell out of there. So, with urgency, they were all told to leave the premises because they had a suspect. Which bomb. is natural, which you well, would do, wouldn't you? You? you didn't, you couldn't tell that the bomb wasn't real. I mean, it wasn't live, and it was, it did have gunpowder in it, and wasn't connected and um, I mean connected um, uh, to electronically to something where somebody could just press a button and, yeah. and detonate it as is often the case in terrorist cases yeah I mean it, it you know, often that is how it's done and also homemade bombs are unstable so even if there wasn't a detonation device to remotely detonate you didn't know what was going to happen if it slipped or something or it moved. So, um, and there were some live cartridges in there. So the obvious thing to do for any sensible person, including law enforcement, in particular law enforcement, was to leave the premises. But that's not what happened. The MI5, who were not in on this, all left pretty much immediately. But Andy and Vincent stayed behind. And why did they stay behind? They claimed to move the, the entire contents on a sheet to another room. So where did they move it? They moved it to the front of the building, virtually under a window where if any member of the public had walked past and the bomb had gone off, they would have been killed. So if that was their true intention, they'd have moved it to the back of the building with no danger to the public. But instead they moved it to the most dangerous place. So that, that must have been a lie as to why they stayed behind. Secondly, why would you move something like this when you don't know whether it might go off? And thirdly, and most importantly, the bomb disposal squad were on the way. I mean, their order was not to touch anything. And yet they, according to them, risked their lives by moving it unnecessarily to another room. Once Vincent and the officers from MI5 find the bag and its contents, they correctly started an evacuation procedure. Crucial to this was that without knowing the exact contents of the bag, it was entirely possible that the pipe bomb could have exploded. Well, if they'd exploded whilst being moved, both Andy and Vincent would have been killed, probably, because if, it, if the bomb had gone off, the cartridges containing gunpowder next to it would also have gone off. Secondly, the place where they put it caused a danger to the public. So no, nobody in their right mind either a member of the public or law enforcement officer not trained in bomb disposal would have touched this, you, you'd immediately leave the premises. You take a photo of it, 
show them where it is and then let them deal with it. So what was Vincent's response when he was asked during the trial as to why he remained in the lockup? A number of different responses, um, doing his duty. And I was saying, what, your duty to get killed and destroy the evidence? Now, why is it your duty to do this when people were on their way to make it safe? What kind of duty is that? And he had no logical or credible answer to any of it. And he, he admitted that he was risking his own life. You know, he turned it into being a hero when he couldn't get out of the corner on this one. Mr Camrish is certainly forthright and pretty damning in his opinion, and you may think he has good reason to be. In next week's podcast, the focus is very much on the trial, and in particular the roles of Vincent, Andy and their senior officers. So what evidence connected the bag to the convicted men? DNA? Fingerprints? There were four unknown fingerprints, and uh, which were not... Kabeb Hussain's or Naweed Ali, so that was a positive, not them, or any of the defendants, or any of their associates, and positive no DNA of any of the defendants or other associates on the bag. But inevitably we asked for the DNA of Andy and Vincent and the fingerprints of Andy and Vincent to be tested against the unknown samples and the prosecution refused to do it and the judge refused to order them to do it. Gareth Pierce believes that the anonymity afforded to Vincent and Andy, the undercover officers, has seriously affected justice being done. There is no way that blanket anonymity should be sustained in law as a matter of right when an officer central to a case has been found out to be a liar, a criminal, committing criminal offences. Of course, police who carry out undercover work, of course, you know, they and their families are potentially at risk if it's trumpeted around, that's what they do in life, of course. However, there was an absolute gulf between what could have been ordered, but not risking Vincent's family. Did Vincent have a, a shed? Had he ordered a set of cleavers, of which this was one of a set? Had he ordered them? Had he gone shopping for sticky tape? Did he belong to a rifle club? Did they have cartridges like this? And what about... There's so much that only the police could do, but, but ultimately that you don't even have his fingerprints on record, you don't even have his DNA, you don't even have Andy's fingerprints on record. What's going on there? And all hidden under the cloak of anonymity. Shocking. Shocking. And there is a very interesting internet search found on Vincent's phone, made at 3am and made prior to the findings of the bag and items in Addy's car. So when the Crown started disclosing the phone communications between the officers on the personal and work phones. Um, it included a 3am link sent from Vincent to someone else. And there was no commentary, it just sent the link. And we looked it up and it was a, I think it was about a, an eight, eight minute film 
of a person emptying gunpowder from cartridges, from bullets, emptying the explosive and pouring it into another item. Exactly what we said had happened in this case, that Vincent had made or made a rudimentary bomb that looked like a half-made pipe bomb using gunpowder. And lo and behold, there's this link with a man using gunpowder to make what appeared to be the beginnings of a rudimentary pipe bomb. I put these concerns to West Midlands Police. They replied with the following statement. All four men were unanimously found guilty after a four and a half month trial in August 2017. In October 2018, the Court of Appeal examined in great detail the safety of the convictions, with Lord Justice Holroyd stating, we have considered whether anything put before us casts doubt on the safety of the convictions. We are satisfied that there is nothing that does so. The jury by their verdicts plainly rejected that the evidence had been planted. Having done so, there was ample circumstantial evidence against each of the accused to support the convictions. Thank you for listening to episode one of The Musketeers. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas, and I will be back next week with more details of the case. In the meantime, please do get in touch and tell me what you think. Contact details and more information about the case can be found on our website, the-detective.co.uk or on our Twitter page, The Detective FM.